1: I'm your host, Ore Okumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Backed up cases and backed up toilets? Britain's courts are falling apart and their collapse is having real consequences for the country's justice system. And have you thought about what you'd like to happen with your body after you die? Would you like to be buried? Cremated, maybe. Most people stick with the traditional options. But there is an increasingly popular third choice that's a bit more earthy. But first... This week... American government employees said goodbye to TikTok. Well, on their work phones, at least. As of Tuesday, the app was banned on all federal devices, echoing moves from Canada, Britain and the European Union to do the same. Last week, American lawmakers grilled TikTok's chief executive, Shouzi Chu, at a House committee hearing. Yes or no, please? Uh, Congressman, I'll, I'll just like to, if respectfully, we if don't mind, I'll just like to start by saying, it's devastating to hear about the news of yes, as a yes podcast.
2: or no. I'll repeat the question.
1: Uh, Congressman, we we do take these issues very y- seriously. Y- yes or no, and we do provide resources for anyone who types in anything that sir, is yes or no. TikTok has been facing renewed scrutiny recently, in large part due to its relationship with the Chinese government. Officials are worried about the risks of misinformation and the manipulation and surveillance of millions of Americans using the app. But as politicians decide what to do about those risks, something unusual is happening.
3: TikTok is often seen as a lens into China.
1: Alexandra Switchbass is The Economist's senior correspondent for Politics, Technology and Society.
3: But it's also a lens into America itself and American politics. There's big national security concerns that have emerged. And there's also something that's very rare in Washington that's emerged, which is a bit of bipartisanship on this issue.
1: Okay, let's start with those national security concerns that you mentioned. Does everyone agree on what the threat from TikTok actually is?
3: The picture is very different today than it was in 2019 when Donald Trump tried unsuccessfully to ban TikTok. Back then, it was mainly the China hawks who were squawking about the threat posed by China and the app. This is something I spoke about with former Deputy National Security Advisor Matt Pottinger. He was part of the Trump administration, which first tried to deal with TikTok, and he explains how everyone's understanding of the threat has developed since then.
4: Yeah, 2020, TikTok. was it? TikTok was much smaller. It's grown massively. But the problems were already apparent to us who were in government, that this was something that could had the potential to be used not only to surveil and steal data, but perhaps even more importantly, it could be used to influence what Americans see and read about our own society and about the world. And there are a lot of things that have emerged, a lot of data points, And new facts that have emerged since then that create an even more ominous mosaic of what TikTok actually represents, what it's capable of, what it has actually done in order to bring data back to China to amplify information that is divisive or pro-China?
3: So as the scale of TikTok has grown and there's now 150 million Americans on the app, so has the collective understanding of how it could be used to be harmful to America. Matt Pottinger talked about the surveillance of journalists, which ByteDance has admitted to. There's also the theoretical threat of TikTok manipulating elections, just like we saw Russia do in 2016 through Facebook. And this is something that both parties, Democrats,
1: and Republicans are increasingly concerned about. So it seems that both parties understand the threat. What does that mean for how both parties approach TikTok?
3: Well, what they share is a negative view toward TikTok, and this tracks a broader public opinion toward China. Today, just 16% of Americans express a favorable view of China. That's down from 44% in 2017. Where politicians struggle is to work out exactly how aggressive they should be and whether they want to risk a public backlash by taking on the app. Again, this is something I spoke about with Matt Pottinger.
4: So the politics have changed in in that it has become more entrenched as part of the daily life of more than 100 million Americans, most of them on the younger side. We also know that some American politicians are using TikTok to campaign. And there's already an asymmetry there because Republicans, by and large, believe that the national security risks override any of those kinds of considerations and they are not using the app. Some Democrats are still using the app because they see it as a way to reach young voters. So what that creates is a really nasty codependency where you have one party aligned with a Chinese Communist Party guided and ultimately controlled information platform in order to try to gain local electoral advantages in the United States. That is a very, very dangerous place to be. So
3: it's worth noting that this is a partisan opinion. Matt Pottinger did work in the Trump administration. But he does point out something really important, which is the fissures within The Democratic Party and between the parties about whether or not they should take on TikTok and risk a backlash, especially from young voters. And there's a group of progressive Democrats who are really anti the anti-TikTok camp. They talk about how the anti-TikTok rhetoric is xenophobic and overreactive, and they see it as an important place to reach young voters and don't seem willing to entertain either a divestment or a ban like many politicians are talking about today.
1: And about these fissures within the Democrats, how are the Democrats who would like to rein in TikTok addressing these concerns within their own party?
3: I spoke with Mark Warner, the U.S. Senator from Virginia, about how to balance what to do with some of those concerns about xenophobia that some members of the Democratic Party have.
4: I try to make very clear my beef is with the Communist Party. It's with President Xi's authoritarian leaderships with the the legal changes in China, like the 2017 Chinese law that mandated that every Chinese company at the end of the day had to answer not to shareholders or to customers, but to the CCP. We need to make sure we make clear our beef is with the policymakers in China and the Communist Party, because otherwise you play right into the CCP's propaganda agenda.
3: Those are the kinds of calculations that are having to be made, at least within the Democratic Party. OK, so
1: suppose it does get to regulation. What could that look like?
3: Over the last few years, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, otherwise known as CFIUS, has been reviewing TikTok. And TikTok has been pushing what is known as Project Texas, which is kind of a halfway solution, which would allow more oversight and for data to be stored in America. And that's an attempt to assuage some of these national security and privacy concerns that Americans have. Politicians really aren't buying that as a solution and nobody's really satisfied. And that's why we're seeing two main options being discussed today, which are more drastic. One is divestment and the other is an outright ban. Even if there is political consensus, though, it's not entirely straightforward. There's a legitimate question about whether or not banning TikTok would violate the First Amendment and freedom of speech. And so some are trying to work around that. For example, Mark Warner and a colleague, John Thune, a Republican, have both co-sponsored a bipartisan bill that would give the Commerce Department the authority to study and potentially ban apps that are deemed to be national security threats. And the White House has supported this as the next step in discussions about TikTok.
1: And so speaking of next steps, what do you reckon? What does the future hold for TikTok in America?
3: It's an extremely difficult question to answer. If We look at precedent, there have been a lot of hearings where congressmen are very upset with tech bosses and all the various offenses they're charged with, from addicting young people to manipulating users to not detecting misinformation on their platform. So this is not just a TikTok-specific problem, but what we've seen throughout The last five years is that while there's a lot of political outrage, there's not a lot of action. And it's entirely possible that we'll see that happen again with TikTok. And so amongst the people I've been interviewing, the view is that unless we see something happen soon, we're likely to not see it happen at all, because as the 2024 election approaches it makes action much less likely because people won't want to be taking drastic steps that get voters' attention on this issue um, and could potentially render them to be unpopular so close to an election.
1: Alexandra, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me.
0: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
1: This week, Rishi Sunak, Britain's prime minister, unveiled a raft of tough-on-crime policies.
4: More in there, but that's a plan in a nutshell. Got immediate justice, Hotspot policing, a ban on nitrous oxide, more drug testing and more investment…
1: Sakhir Starmer, the leader of the opposition Labour Party and formerly one of Britain's most senior public prosecutors is also focusing heavily on crime in his manifesto
5: The launch of Labour's second national mission to make our streets safe and stop criminals getting away without punishment
6: Both
1: party leaders want to seem tough on these issues ahead of next year's general election. The pledges come at a sensitive time for the criminal justice system. A damning independent report released last week exposed institutional racism, sexism and homophobia in the country's biggest police force. Its author called for a national review.
7: I think that we need a root and branch review of policing Mm. as we move into the Mm. 21st century and that that is
1: one of the... A rethink of policing and a crackdown on crime may ultimately lead to more people needing their day in court. But days in court are proving hard to come by.
5: In England and Wales, there is a really big backlog of some of the most serious criminal cases, about 60,000 still waiting to be heard in court.
1: Sam Westron is a senior producer for The Intelligence.
5: Crunching through that backlog is difficult because there are loads of logistical problems when it comes to organising trials. But one problem which is getting in the way is the state of the courts themselves. It's adding to delays and it's proving really frustrating for the people that work within the criminal justice system.
1: Now, Sam, bring us up to speed. How did things get this bad?
5: So there are two parts to this. One is the pandemic. Courts were closed, cases backed up. And the context of all of that is... This happened at a time when the criminal justice system in England and Wales was squeezed quite hard by a decade of austerity. So from 2010 onward, the budget for the Ministry of Justice, which is the government department, which looks after the criminal justice system, fell by 25% you've seen court closures, nearly a third of all courts in England and Wales have closed during that time. And if you look at, for example, the maintenance of these court buildings, that has very much gone the same way. And it's those buildings now, which are making cracking on with getting those cases through the door more difficult.
1: What do we know about the scale of problems with the buildings? I mean, how big are we talking here?
5: So to get a Better sense of the problem, I went to go and speak to Lubna Shuja. She's the president of the Law Society.
7: The Law Society is the body that represents over 200,000 solicitors across England and Wales. Our role is to protect the rule of law. We also represent our. So the
5: Law Society recently published a report looking into the problems within the courts themselves.
7: There are so many issues that are causing cases to be adjourned, to be delayed. I mean, I can give you examples. We know that there are courts where there are toilets that are not working properly. They're either leaking or they're blocked. We know that there was a court where sewage was coming up from the cells We know from a solicitor who told us that he was in court and an air conditioning unit fell on his head. And I mean, this all sounds, you know, it all all sounds very faulty towers, but actually these things are not getting fixed. That's the problem.
5: They surveyed their members and 64% of the people that responded said within the last 12 months they'd experienced delays as a result of the court infrastructure. These problems with the courts themselves is short circuiting that effort to get that backlog under control
1: sewage blocked toilets and literally collapsing courts what does that mean for the day-to-day attempts to get through this backlog
5: it makes it really difficult logistically trials are already quite complicated things to set up and when the defendants can't get into the building for example or the court building has to be shut down because of the sewage it means that those trials get pushed they get moved they get delayed and that has really big knock-on effects for the people working within the system i shadowed a criminal barrister james Oliveira agnew he is assistant secretary for the criminal bar association the body which represents criminal barristers in england and wales and he spoke about some of the problems that he had encountered in the past couple of weeks when i spoke to him certainly brighton crown court they had an issue with the heating there was no hot water and so the heating completely went, and they had to move all their trials to Hove Crown Court. I then was due to start a trial in Lewis. When we arrived, the temperature in the courtroom was 13 degrees. The air conditioning was on full blast. The temperature was just getting colder. The judge said that we couldn't possibly sit a jury in that condition. I was in Guildford, and they had managed to get the shuttered doors leading from the main road into the court building frozen so none of the prison vans could enter. So again, everything delayed, nothing starting, just really difficult to get things off the ground at the moment. So it is really difficult when you are a barrister and you're meant to be at one court to do one trial and maybe all of a sudden you have to travel to a different city or travel to a different town. There's a lot of moving parts and as soon as one piece in that puzzle starts moving, it has knock-on effects for cases elsewhere.
1: And so where does that leave this backlog?
5: So at the moment, the backlog is staying pretty flat, but bringing it down is going to take a really long time. And if you are entering the criminal justice system right now, you are facing a very lengthy wait to get justice. And this is something that Lubna Shuja, the president of the Law Society, was talking to me about.
7: Behind every single one of those cases, we've got a victim, we've got a defendant, we've probably got witnesses involved, and all of them are not getting justice because their cases are taking so long to get through court.
5: And just to illustrate that point that she's making a little bit further with an example, I was hearing from a lawyer telling me about a defendant of theirs who had to wait 14 months in prison on remand, waiting for their day in court. After about six months, they were offered a plea deal which essentially meant if you plead guilty, you can leave prison today, you can go, your sentence would be served. Instead, they had to wait a further seven, eight months to get their day in court. Eventually, they were acquitted anyway. So you can end up with some cases that don't really feel like justice if you have to spend more time in prison to prove you're innocent than just to say you did something that you didn't do just to avoid waiting for a trial. That doesn't feel like a justice system that's operating particularly well.
1: Is it just a question of more money?
5: It is and it isn't. I think when you're thinking about very specific scenarios, say where you are waiting for your day in court, I think you could definitely make a case for more investment if you knew, for example, that your day in court was going to get delayed because of specific problems with court infrastructure. I think that that's quite easy to make a case for. I think when you're talking about making investments in a criminal justice system, you need to be very careful about making sure that you're taking in the bigger picture. So referring all the way back to, for example, the report into policing and the call for a nationwide review of policing because of things like institutionalized biases within a system. If you are going to be making the case for investing in a criminal justice system, which you know the police is a core component of you need to be very clear that when you're thinking about making more investment you are doing so in a way which doesn't make the problem worse but actually helps fix some of those problems.
1: Sam thank you so much for joining us.
5: Thanks for having me.
2: My name is Katrina Spade. I'm the founder and CEO of Recompose. All of us, at some point, begin to give
1: serious consideration to the inevitable. For Katrina Spade, those thoughts led to her starting her own company.
2: I was feeling mortal because I had turned 30 and I was in graduate school for architecture. And I started to just think about my own mortality, and look at the options for my body when I died. It was very much a design exercise and a personal exploration. It was not meant to be a business plan at the beginning at all. And I realized pretty quickly that I wasn't interested in being cremated, and I wasn't interested in conventional burial with embalming and casket and headstone. And I found out about a practice called natural burial where People's bodies are placed in the earth with a shroud or a wooden a wooden coffin. And I thought, well, oh, that's beautiful, a way to return to the earth. But that's really a rural practice, mostly, because you need land to do it. So I set out to find an urban solution for ecological death care. I was very lucky that a friend of mine knew I was thinking about death and dying and and ecology, and she called me on the phone and asked if I'd heard about the practice that farmers use to compost livestock. And I immediately had an epiphany that if you could compost a cow, you could certainly compost a human being. And that was the beginning of my creating what is now Recompose. Composting a human is
6: actually pretty quick and quite straightforward.
1: Lizzie Pete writes for The Economist and is based in New York.
6: A body is placed in a kind of vessel, along with things like wood chips, straw and alfalfa, which creates a warm atmosphere of carbon, nitrogen, oxygen and moisture. And this really helps microbes settle in and break it down. It's then left in this vessel for about eight weeks, can be up to 12, it really depends, in which time it breaks down. And that might sound a bit grisly and grim, but it ends with a small mound of soil, which can then be given back to the families and used to plant trees or nurture plants.
1: Sounds like this is pretty good for the environment then.
6: Yeah, I mean, that's the big selling point. Compared to the traditional burial options, it's clearly really environmentally friendly. So a typical burial in a cemetery requires massive quantities of steel and concrete to reinforce the graves, as well as millions of gallons of embalming fluid if the person has opted to be embalmed before burial, which all seep harmful chemicals into the ground. And then there's cremation, which has become the more popular option in recent years. Which is a lot more straightforward, but it still emits the carbon dioxide equivalent of driving about 500 miles in a car. So it accounts for 1.74 billion pounds of emissions annually in the US. But then with human composting, there's actually a net environmental benefit. So obviously it doesn't require those kind of harmful materials and it doesn't produce those same emissions. And it also creates a really fertile soil full of nutrients. And in a survey last year by the National Funeral Directors Association, nearly two-thirds of respondents were interested in exploring green funeral options, which is up from 51% in 2019 and is a number they reckon will very likely increase. So it looks like
1: this is really set to take off then?
6: Well, I think instinctively when a lot of people hear this idea, they're kind of repulsed um, for some reason. It sounds kind of quite grim. And religious groups with strict burial customs say it goes against their core teachings and it's kind of offensive. So the New York Catholic Conference has said that human bodies are not household waste and that composting is more appropriate for vegetable trimmings and eggshells, which is a pretty cutting rebuke. But that said, earlier this month, the Church of England announced that they're considering backing it as part of a drive to net zero by 2030. So I think worldwide, you're seeing religious groups kind of thinking about this in different ways.
1: So when could we see people tick the box and opt to be human
6: compost? So it's not legal everywhere. Um, In January, New York became the sixth state to legalise it, and that will go into effect later this month. But a wave may soon sweep the US. There are currently bills passing through state houses in five states, including Nevada, Minnesota and Connecticut. And for its part, Recompose, which is the company run by Katrina Spade, says there are several thousand people on a waiting list, a quarter of them under the age of 49, which is really interesting because normally you see young people not really thinking about this until much later in life. And people across America in surveys have responded that they're thinking a lot more about the environment when considering their burial options.
1: And Lizzie, just one final question. Would you like to be composted?
6: Well, when I first started looking into this, I was equally as repulsed as I'm sure a lot of other people are. But actually, the more research I did, I would definitely now consider it for its environmental impacts, if anything.
1: Thank you so much for joining us.
6: Thanks very much for having me.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. Drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com. And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, what are you waiting for? Dive in. Get a free 30-day digital...
0: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter visit bank bankingforbusiness banking for business to learn more what would you like the power to do bank of america na copyright 2024
1: subscription by going to economist.com intelligence offer the link is in the show notes we'll see you back here tomorrow